0: Good morning, church. Good morning. morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28. And so this morning we're going to be looking at the Great Commission. So we may have heard about that before. I want us to think about it from the perspective of after the resurrection, knowing and going. That's our response to the resurrection. And so there's a story about a pastor who once filled in in children's church and was teaching the children's church church sermon that particular Sunday. And so as part of his children's church lesson, he looked at the group of young people and he asked them, what's brown, furry, has a long bushy tail, and loves acorns? And one little boy spoke up and said, preacher, I know that you want the answer to be Jesus, but it sure does sound like a squirrel to me. (laughs) And so for us, we may want to know Jesus, and we may kind of know that Jesus is The Sunday school answer. We may know that Jesus is what we're supposed to say a lot of times, and we may know how Jesus fits in culturally or even into our particular context and groups of friends and family and that sort of thing. But in Matthew's gospel, we encounter a resurrected Jesus who gives us a Really powerful mandate to go out and to make disciples of all nations. And so he also tells us that we're to do this based on his authority. And he gets this authority because he is the resurrected one. He is the one who was dead and then he lived again. And so before we read our text this morning, I really kind of just want you to get the context with me. Just get the picture of what's going on here because. This great commission that comes following the resurrection at the end of Matthew's gospel comes at a really profound point because when we stop and we think about this, the the resurrection had just occurred, and just before that, three days later, Jesus is crucified on the cross and he's laid in a tomb and he's buried and so there's this group of disciples the 12 that we know about who one betray- betrayed him with a kiss before the, the before he was arrested and crucified so then there's 11 disciples that we know that were close to Jesus and walked with Jesus and knew Jesus intimately. And then there's this broader group of disciples who had followed after Jesus and they had heard him teach. They had seen him work miracles like making deaf people hear again, blind people see again, even raising people from the dead. And then all of a sudden, this person, this teacher, this Messiah, who they had put all of their hope in and all of their trust in, and they're looking for him to establish the kingdom. He's nailed to a cross and he's crucified and he's laid in a tomb and a heavy stone is rolled in front of the tomb and guards are placed in front of the tomb to make sure that nobody gets in, nobody steals his body, nobody messes with what's happened, that Jesus has been put to death, and it's over. And so a lot of the disciples kind of go back to doing what they're doing. They go back to the fishing dock, right? And they just kind of start to give up. I'm sure Peter, at this point, is just crushed. Last week, Chris talked about how Peter had denied even knowing who Jesus was. And then later we see in Acts that Peter is preaching one of the most powerful sermons in, uh, in the history of the church. And so, But at this point, the resurrection hadn't happened yet, and there's despair, and there's loss, and there's grief. And then all of a sudden there's this great earthquake and the ground shakes and the stone is rolled away. And the Roman guards who are placed there at the tomb, they are scared out of their mind. They fall like dead men, scripture tells us. And so then they go and, and they're told, hey, don't say anything about this. And here's some money to make sure that you don't say anything about this. And then Mary and Mary Magdalene come to the tomb, and as they're coming, they meet an angel, and the angel says, Why are you seeking the living among the dead? Because he's not here anymore. The one that you're seeking He has been resurrected. He's raised to life. And so they see Jesus. Mary and Mary Magdalene see Jesus. And this is kind of where our our story picks up because when they see him, if you look at Matthew 28 and verse 19, this is what Jesus, or verse 10, this is what Jesus says to them. It says, Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. And so when we pick up with with the text we're going to look at today in 16 through 20 of Matthew's gospel, we see that same kind of context. We see that the disciples have indeed gone to Galilee where Jesus had instructed them to go. And Jesus gives them this mandate to know him, but then also to go and make disciples of all nations. So let's read our text together. Now, the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, may God add His blessing and favor to the reading of His word. Thanks be to God. And so, <clears throat> let's uh, let's look at a couple things here. The first thing that I want us to see is just kind of this main idea. So everything that we look at will flow out of a couple main main concepts or main thoughts. So the main idea of this text, I think, is that the resurrection makes it possible for us to know Jesus and to go and tell others about Jesus. So there's two words there that are really important, knowing and going. So this text tells us how to do both. And so when we look at this, the first one is to know, and then we are led by him. So we see that Jesus tells, um, the, the ele- it says now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had instructed or had directed them. And so This isn't a surprise. This isn't something that they just kind of got together and said, oh, I think he might be at the mountain. But this is something that they had had a conversation with Jesus about. And if we want to know Jesus and we really want to get to know him, Man, we've got to have those conversations. Amy, I love that you talked about having a conversation with God in our prayer time because that's exactly, I think, how we get to know him on a deeper and more intimate level. If we get to know people in our circle of influence, people that we work with, or even family, friends, spouses, we get to know them because we're having conversation with them, right? We get to know their heart. We get to know what they're like and what they enjoy and what they dislike and those sorts of things and so this tells us that as Jesus had instructed the disciples, they went to the mountain in Galilee. And the, it tells us that this mountain is a mountain to which he has directed them. And so we may not see Jesus in the physical sense and have those kinds of direct instructions from us, but we know that Colossians tells us that Christ is in us, and that's the hope of glory, and it's him that directs us, and that him, it's him that leads us. And so one of the marks of being a disciple, one of the marks of knowing Jesus Is that we are led by him. We are led by. His Spirit. We are led by His Word. We are led by His teachings, and we are led by our faith in Him. And so as we go throughout our day and our week and all that we do where we live, work, and play, we do this being directed by Jesus, letting Him live through us because indeed Christ in us is the hope of glory. And then we also see as part of knowing Him is that we're identified with Him. And so it's the 11 disciples who are identified and also this broader group of of disciples as well are likely there at the mountain in Galilee. And so they're identified with Jesus as his disciples. They're followers of Jesus. He is the teacher. He is the rabbi, and they are following after him. And so they're identified with him. And so these are 11 men who are close to Jesus, and they're referred to as his disciples, but there's also others who are identified with him. And so I've been working through something. One thing I've been really praying through for our church as we go into 2019 <laughs> is what does discipleship look like for our church? We've been working a lot with community groups and small groups and discipleship groups as, as we move forward. And so that's just been something that's really been on my heart and my mind going into the new year. And so I started just kind of asking myself, you know, what? what is a disciple? Like if we talk about discipleship groups, why are people going to want to be a part of that? And so I've read a bunch of stuff lately on discipleship and what makes a disciple and that sort of thing. And so I've just been trying to kind of come up with my – own definition that's clear and it's concise and it's easy to communicate to, to our church. But then also just whenever people ask me, you know, if, I, if I'm involved in a discipleship group and people ask me, you know, what is that all about? What are you trying to accomplish? Uh, I think this is what we're trying to accomplish. So the definition that, that um, I've gained from Scripture and reading some different things is this, a believer that is maturing in the image of Christ by being equipped to grow in worship, service, and evangelism. A believer maturing in the image of Christ by being equipped to grow in worship, service, and evangelism. I believe that's so important that we are identified with Christ in that way, that we are growing in the image of Christ, that we are maturing toward being conformed to the likeness of the Son of God because we have fallen in love with Him. And Jesus tells us that if we love Him, we will obey Him, right? And so. We're identified with him. And so we're today going to celebrate believers' baptism. That's what this is all about. That's what the public baptism is about. It's about being identified with with Jesus. And it's about, mm, I love that we talk a lot here about remembering your baptism. So as you continue on in your maturity in Christ and you're growing more in the image of Christ, you remember that you were identified with him in a public manner where you were buried in the likeness of his death and raised to walk in newness of life as a picture of what Christ has done for you. And so when we identify um, with Christ through putting our faith in him (coughs) and also being baptized, um, it's a lot like a wedding ring, right? Like a wedding ring doesn't mean that we Um, or married or not married, I still, I'm I'm very proud of this fact. I have been married 13 years and I still have my original wedding day wedding ring, which is shocking to me and everyone that knows me. But when I look at this ring, it reminds me of the covenant that I made that day, right? It reminds me of the love that I have for my spouse. The ring doesn't necessarily make me married or not married if i leave the ring at home or even if i did lose the ring before before um, 13 years then i would still be married right and so it's it's a reminder though of what what i what commitment i made and that's what baptism does that's why identifying with christ does and it also reminds us of 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 his love for us and what we're what we're growing toward in the maturity and the likeness of him and so um, we are led by him or identified with him. And then the third part of this is that we worship him. And so we see that at the end of this journey, the disciples arrive at the designated mountain and they see him. I want you just to take a minute and kind of imagine what that might look like. Like, imagine their joy, imagine what pain and loss they had experienced in the time that we talked about leading up to the resurrection. And then they remember that he had led them, that he had directed them to go to the mountain at Galilee. And so they make the journey to the mountain at Galilee. I don't know who gets there first. I imagine maybe they get there and they're waiting on him and they're like looking around at each other. Is he going to come? What's, what's going on. Maybe they don't even fully understand it or wrap their minds or their emotions around what is about to happen. And then there he is, the one who was crucified on the cross, except he's not dead anymore. He is very much alive in the resurrected state. And imagine what their hearts must have been feeling. And so they're elated and they pause and they worship him. J.I. Packer says this in Knowing God. He says, we can turn our knowledge about God into our knowledge of God, and when the rule for doing this is simple but demanding, is that we turn each truth that we learn about God into a matter for med- meditation before God, leading to prayer and praise to God. And so the disciples had heard all of this stuff, all of these teachings, all of these promises, all of these prophecies that Jesus had had for three years of ministry. And then here it all is fulfilled right before their eyes in the mountain at Galilee. And they're they're doing exactly what Packer says. They are praising God. The mark of a disciple is one who worships Jesus. When we talk about worship, we really get that word from worthship. It's whatever's worth the most to us in our life because we all worship something. And if I were to spend enough time with you and you were to spend enough time with me, we would know what we worship after just a day or so. It's what we spend our time on. It's what we spend our money on. It's what we spend our time thinking about. It's what we spend our time doing. All of those things tell us what we value most in our lives. And so the challenge for us as believers is to make sure that Jesus is supremely valued, that he's chiefly valued over anything else in our life. Paul says in Philippians, he says he counts everything else as rubbish, as garbage, Compared to knowing Jesus Christ, and so that's what the the disciples are doing here. They're saying that everything is all about Him, and I'm going to give my life to that. I'm going to hang my hat on that. <clears throat> and so, there was a sermon that I heard back in the early 2000s, and so back in the early 2000s, kids, we had CDs. Um, they were they were round and I, a friend of mine gave me a CD that I put in my car and the CD was from Passion One Day Two Thousand. Some of you may remember this big event for college students. I was I was um, not quite in college yet. I was in uh, junior senior in high school in two thousand. And so, <coughs> a friend of mine gave me the CD though. And I popped it in. I remember sitting in my S10 Chevy pickup up at Tanner's in Lawrenceville. I don't know if you remember Tanner's in Lawrenceville. I miss that place so much. But I was sitting in their parking lot. I was listening to this CD from this conference for college students. And there was this guy that I had never heard of before that was on the CD, and his name was John Piper. And a lot of you guys have probably heard of Piper since then. But Piper said this quote in this sermon, and it did radically change the way that I think about my life and how I'm going to spend my life on that day. He said, you don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in the world, but you do have to know a few things, that, a few great things that matter and be willing to live and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in the world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by a few great things. And that's what worship is. It's being mastered by the greatest thing. It's being mastered by Jesus and being willing to follow him to the ends of the earth, no matter what, no matter what the risk, no matter what the journey. But then there's this crazy thing that happens in this passage. All the disciples are there. There's this wonderful moment of joy when they see the resurrected Jesus, and they worship him. But then it says, some doubted. And I read that, and I thought, that's not supposed to be there. Some doubted. This is Jesus who is resurrected from the dead. He's standing before you in the flesh, and some doubted? Like, what's that about? think a couple things, I think one, this shows us the integrity of scripture, like if i'm matthew i'm not putting that in there because I, I, I this isn't good this doesn't fit it doesn't work, but it shows us the the integrity and the authenticity and and just the raw emotion and 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 realness of scripture and so there's there's a saying that says, if you tell a man that there are stars in the universe, he'll believe you. But then listen to this. It says, but if a sign says fresh paint, he's going to make it a personal investigation. And so we just have a tendency to doubt, I think, right? And we have a tendency to test it out. And I love that it says that some doubted because I totally, totally get what that's about. And these may not have been the 11, but it likely, likely refers to some of the 12, other than the 11 that were there, some of those who followed Jesus. And I, I don't know, I feel like that sometimes. I remember when I first became a Christian, I was like 12 year, 11, 12 years old when I first became a Christian. I remember just laying in my bed at night recently after that experience, when I was about 11, and 12 years old, thinking, did I really mean that prayer that I prayed? Did I really say the right words did I, was I really emotional enough and I kind of struggled with that throughout the years, especially my early years of the faith and, and into college. I really struggled. Am I really a Christian? Am I really doing the right things? Am I really doing what I want to do? and then I remember my baptism and then I remember what Christ has done for me. And I remember that it's this important truth that it's him who holds me and I don't hold him. And he's got me securely in his nail pierced hand and he's never going to let me go. I remember Romans chapter eight that tells us that literally nothing, including life nor death, can separate us from the love of God. And it's awesome because even though some doubted guess what happened on that mountain in Galilee? Jesus was there. And you know what? Some of us will doubt, and Jesus is still there because he's holding you tightly in his hand. So if you're here and you've kind of struggled with that a little bit, know that it's Jesus who's doing the work in you. It's him who is completing you. It's him who is transforming you and making you more and more like his son. And that's the goal of discipleship, that we're maturing to the image of Christ, right, and so <coughs> there 's this this awesome thing that happens too where Jesus says that he has all of the authority, and so he kind of shifts from this this just knowing him, being identified with him, some worshiping him, but some still doubting, and then he transfers to this idea of going, so he says that that he has all authority in heaven and on earth that has been given. To him, and so I kind of want to follow this this progression a little bit, just of some important words in this text, because I think it just kind of shows us the way that we should think about the Great Commission, because I know for me a lot of times I hear about the Great Commission, and i've kind of heard about it all my life and from growing up in Sunday school, and so you kind of get sometimes where, where it just is like, oh, yeah, I know about that. But I want us to kind of break this down and just follow it a little bit slower of how Jesus is doing this. So this is the first word that he has here in twenty eight eighteen is authority. So I want us to think about Jesus' authority. So this is his sovereign authority that is given to him. And John MacArthur says this about it. He says, this is clear proof of his deity. The time of his humiliation was at an end, and God had exalted him above all. So Jesus had, Philippians tells us that when he came to earth, he humbled himself. He emptied himself, right, of godliness. And so when we celebrate Christmas, we celebrate Jesus in the manger, right, the weak little baby who comes and is born in humility and, and in humbleness in a stable And then we see humility in in Jesus' life throughout. We see him bending down and washing the disciples' feet. We see see him um, kind of in this point where he's not exercising a lot of authority throughout his ministry. But then the resurrection comes, and he is saying that on the basis of this, on the basis that I am the resurrected one, all authority has uh, been given to me. And it's on the basis of that authority that I'm sending you out to go and make other disciples. And so I just want us to see a little bit about this authority. If you have your Bible and want to flip over with me to Philippians chapter 2, this is just an incredible insight to who Jesus is and, and the authority that he has. So it says in Philippians 2 verses 9 through 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So it's when we're proclaiming the gospel, when we're sharing our faith, man, we have great authority that we're to do it on. And I know, I understand, sometimes I get in situations where I have a great opportunity to share my faith, and and I freeze, and I think, "Uh, this is going to be awkward, or what are they going to think about me, or am I going to say the right thing, or I don't want to sound too preachy, or I don't want to sound like I have it all together. Uh, I, sometimes I just don't know what to do, but when I have those moments and I don't know what to do and I don't want to share my faith, it's because for some reason I'm thinking that it's about me and it's on my authority and it has nothing to do with me and my authority. It has everything to do with Jesus and his authority. It has everything to do with the name that every tongue will confess, that every knee will bow to, and that, that everyone will praise for all of eternity. That's whose authority it's on, not yours and not mine. And then he says in verse 19, therefore. And anytime you see the word therefore in scripture, ask what it's there for, right? And so it's there because of his authority. And he says, based on this authority, it's not the basis of our own ideals, our own worldviews, our own philosophies. It's the authority of our witness based on um, how good he is, not how good we are. And so then he also says in verse 19, this word baptizing them. So we've talked a lot about baptism today because we get to celebrate it today. We get to see it in action today. And so uh, when we think about baptism, Jesus is saying, hey, we're going to go and we're going to baptize believers. We're going to baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when we Do that when we're baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's this idea that we're baptizing in the name of a Trinitarian God, the Godhead, where the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all working together in cooperation of our lives to bring us to the fullness of our salvation. And then he also says in verse 20 that we're to be teaching. So who are we to be teaching? We are to teach others how to observe the commands of Christ. Um, Teaching is a means by which disciples of Jesus are continually transformed in order to become more like Christ. If you want to flip over with me to Romans, I've got one more text here for you to turn to. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 29. This is just about being conformed to the image of Christ Says, and we know that uh, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. And then look look at verse twenty nine. See, a lot of times we we read that and we think it's working God's working all things together for good for everyone. And how can that be? But then look at verse twenty nine. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the first. Born among many brothers, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, there's a lot of big theological words there that Chris will explain later if you have any questions about that. But this is basically what that passage is saying it's saying that God's in control of everything, and God's working everything to good according to his plan, and in the process, you and I as followers of Jesus are becoming more and more like his son. And one day we're going to stand before him, and one day we're going to worship him, and we are going to be in the very image of his son. That's what that verse is saying, and that is how we are to, to teach people so that they become more and more like Jesus. Teaching occurs in our everyday conversation. Teaching occurs when we go to school, when we go to work, when we serve in our community, when we raise our families. Teaching occurs when we say a prayer of thanks before our meal. Teaching occurs when we listen to a friend who's in need. Teaching occurs as we have coffee with a friend. Teaching occurs when we work and worship together in the corporate body of Christ. And so here's my challenge for us about teaching. It's just be intentional. Be intentional about who you're spending time with, who you're investing in, and what you're saying to them. Are you talking about Jesus? Are you talking about what he's done in your life and what his word says that we should be doing? So then we have this wonderful promise here at the end. He says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so John MacArthur tells us that this is a touching echo of the beginning of Matthew's gospel. I didn't think about that until I read that from MacArthur, so I'll give him credit for it. But he says, this is from um, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, where... Uh, Matthew says that Jesus' name is Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So Matthew's gospel starts with God is with us and it ends with God is with us even to the end of the age. And so how is Jesus with us? Jesus is with his disciples physically until he ascended into heaven and then spiritually through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would be Jesus' presence that would never, ever leave them. We know that from John chapter 14. And then Jesus continues to be with us today through his Holy Spirit. And so Colossians, we said earlier, tells us that Christ in us is the hope of glory. So I wanted to um, conclude with a quote from George Washington. I just recently read a book about um, seven seven different men that made a profound difference in the world. And George Washington was one of those seven men that were included in this book. And it talked about how Washington was kind of this fearless general warrior and how he took on all of these responsibilities and he led um, a ragtag army to victory and he eventually became father of our country. And so when he became the father of our country, the first president, he was offered a kingship. And one of the profound things about Washington is that he was very humble despite all of his tremendous success. And so um, he was offered to be king of the United States of America. And he declined being king of the United States of America because he felt like that would be too much power for too long for one individual. And so Washington humbly declined that. And I wanted to read you a quote that um, that kind of kind of just embodies this idea of being fiercely humble and compassionate as we go out into the world, because even as we are humble going out into the world and we 're doing the things that Jesus said, there should be an intensity and there should be a passion to how we live and how we talk. And so Washington, as, as general, spent the winter in Valley Forge with troops and he wasn't at home with his wife in their well-heated home place. And as a general, he said this to his men. He said, We have therefore to resolve to conquer or die. We, our own country, country's honor all call upon us for vigorous and manly exertion. And if we now shamefully fail, listen to this, we shall become infamous to the whole world. Let us therefore rely upon the goodness of the cause and the supreme being in whose hands victory is to animate and encourage us great and noble actions. And so I thought that was fitting for the Great Commission because... I think the same is true for you, and it's true for me. Christ has done so much for us, and there's so much at stake. There's eternity at stake as we leave this place. And if we shall fail, we should become infamous to the whole world, and then we just rely on the Supreme Being. We rely on the Father because the victory is His. The victory's already been won, and there's this incredible story That we get to be a part of by knowing Jesus and then going to tell others about him. And so as we consider knowing and going, I just pray that we would consider our mission in the kingdom. Um, This is the greatest charge. This is the greatest commission in all of human history. And we get to be a part of it. And we don't just get to be a part of it, but we get to be on the front lines because we've been adopted into the family as sons and daughters of the king. So we get to know him and we get to go. And so I just want to pray that God would appropriate that truth into our hearts. Would you pray with with me? Father, we thank you this morning for the glorious gospel.